Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Horn, host of Buddhist Geeks, and I'm excited today to be joined by Eric Davis. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I want to mention a little bit about your background so people have a sense of who you are, where you're coming from, your major areas of interest, and then we're just going to jump right into Meditating on Psychedelics, uh, the series that we've been doing here at Buddhist Geeks and that I'm so excited to chat with you about today. Um, namely because this has been an intersection point in, in your exploration, your life for, I don't know, it's been decades, I guess, that you've been into this topic, these topics? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, I remember the, the first, uh, uh, the, the, the time I really got the kind of Buddhist uh, hit, you know, where I, I, the, the seed was planted. I mean, I had, I had read, you know, Zen Flesh and Zen Bones when I was a teenager and I was reading all the sort of countercultural spiritual books and stuff. So I was familiar with the zone, but then uh, I met uh, Geshe Michael Roach in India in 1994 before he was like a tantric crazy man when he was like a, a pretty straight monk. Um, but uh, he had a funny glint in his eyes and we started talking about like cyberspace and science fiction and then we got into talking about mescaline and he talked about his mescaline trip he had and but at the same time it was kind of bound up with this this sort of uh diamond shine of uh buddhist logic and a, a, the kind of thinking and and sort of clarity uh that was brought in particularly through sankapa and he handed me a sankapa book and i read that and i was like hooked and that really initiated that conversation with him and and reading that book really initiated me into being kind of obsessed with Buddhism for for many many years um, even as I was still um, writing about and exploring psychedelic counterculture and other you know other aspects uh, of the counterculture so I was in a always in an interesting place to sort of see that overlap and uh, no individuals you know private individuals people who weren't writing or publishing necessarily, uh, who are also kind of uh, psychedelic Buddhists. Um, and so that I just happen to know a lot of folks like that. So it's it's been an interesting overlap in my life and in my thinking uh, and my sort of anthropology stuff that I do as a, as a journalist and writer uh, for, for, for quite a while. So I should say that I've been aware of you and your work for quite some time, but only recently um, got to start reading it and listening to your podcast. And I almost feel embarrassed to, to have waited this long because there's such a, a tremendous amount of overlap in the things you've explored and what Buddhist Geeks has been about. I, I consider you sort of like an original geek, Buddhist geek, so... Uh, yeah, no, I liked that. I mean, I was, I've always, yeah, I, one of my regrets is that I didn't go to the conferences when they were happening. I was always aware of the scene and I really loved the, the dialogue and I was just waiting, you know, it's like I was kind of waiting for that, that kind of approach to, to happen. And I've, I've been really interested in, in seeing how the questions, uh, you know, evolve in, in terms of bringing in new sensibilities, you know, stripping away certain outmoded forms, uh, and just getting really geeky about about meditation and and what it can do and and uh, what it opens up. I mean, it's opened up tons for me. It's it's a you know it's a lifeline. I wish I was a little more rigorous about it, but uh, 
but I'm still seasoned <laughs> at this point. So, uh, so yeah, definitely uh, following parallel parallel currents here. Yeah, totally. And I, I want to mention a couple books. One is Technosis that you wrote called uh, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. And then you contributed an excellent uh, chapter to Zig Zag Zen, which is, uh, I guess, really kind of the first book to explicitly explore Buddhism and psychedelics. It was released back in 2001 and then re-released recently uh, with some updates. And you wrote a chapter called The Paisley Gate, uh, which was my uh, entry into to your writing and thinking. And I really enjoyed it quite a bit. And then last but not least, I want to mention The Expanding Mind, which is the podcast that you've been hosting for several years and really interesting topics and guests on there. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun cast. I've been doing it for, God, for some seven years now. It's crazy. And uh, uh, it's become this wonderful way to keep my my mind sparkly and you know to meet uh, new friends and talk to old friends and uh, you know like you i i really uh, uh embrace the kind of conversational form uh and not get too fussy about you know editing or you know and asking the right you know questions that an interviewer should an, uh, ask and instead just kind of exploring and a lot of a lot of stuff about meditation and psychedelics and mind expansion in our uh, terrifying uh, cybernetic age. <laughs> yeah, I sort of think back to the years and years of archives and think, wow, it's amazing I've been showing my ass for this long in public. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been out for a while. I mean, I wrote I wrote a uh, a piece for the Village Voice in oh god, when was it? 92 maybe, early 90s, where I wrote about being a a druggie uh, is a, a stoner high school kid. And it was an interesting move. Cause I was like, okay, now, you know, and that was, people were not telling you know, drugs were not cool <laughs> in the early night. You know, right. the, the New York times was not writing about medical cannabis and, and psychedelic therapy in the early nineties. So it was a different time to like kind of out yourself, mm. uh, and be sort of associated with that, with that zone. Uh, uh, but you know, I'm kind of glad it, I, I did because it's allowed me to really build up a whole body of, of thought and connections with people and writings that kind of set up this moment we're in now where all, all of the, everything's changing, you know, and psychedelics are visible and, and people are, are having, you know, intelligent and well-informed discussions about them outside the context of the counterculture. And, uh, you know, it's just a fascinating time. So it's, it's actually really, you know, I'm glad that I, I stuck to those issues for so long because it sort of set me up to be have an interesting perspective on what's happening now. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny when I hear about your background and kind of how you got into drugs and psychedelics and then also got exposed to Buddhist practice. Um, in some ways, we sort of have a little bit of an opposite background in that I, I started with the Buddhist practice and went on the hardcore Puritan meditation trip. And then as I sort of relaxed and matured a little bit in my practice, I then got curious about the psychedelic stuff uh, and started trying it. Um, and so it's a slightly different background, but one thing that I think both of us share is an experience of ha having hang hung out with a lot of boomer Buddhists who, um, you know, on retreats, if you're hanging out with a teacher, they'll eventually at some point start talking about some psychedelic trip they or one of their other friends or colleagues had in Asia uh, or, or in the U.S. before they went to Asia. And it's almost always, <laughs> it's almost always uh, an interesting and far out story. And what struck me as being so bizarre 
um, especially doing this series, looking at Zigzag Zen, is how how many stories there are like this. I mean, I went to Naropa University and I cannot tell you the number of crazy stories I heard about Chuggyam Trungpa and the scene there, uh, many of them psychedelic. But it's amazing how how out this knowledge is once you're in the inner scene, but how little it's discussed and talked about openly, like say in mainstream Buddhist media sources. It's like there's just one book for the longest time. What do you make of that? Well, that was one of the things I was was trying to attend to uh, in my essay, "The Paisley Gate" for for Zigzag Zen. When I mean, when I heard that that Alan Bediner was doing that book, I was like really aggressive about pursuing him, and he didn't know who I was, and you know, he had all the more more boomer Buddhists who represented. He had his his scene, but I, you know, I convinced him to let me to let me do that, and. And so I kind of had that little, that, that sociological approach, that question of like, how did this develop in the West? How is this psychedelic stream functioning in contemporary uh, Buddhism? And I was inspired by a, a conversation that happened at, um, at Green Gulch Farms, where I, was, I had did, a, did a lot of practice uh, hanging out with, uh, with, with, with Tension Reb Anderson. And we were sitting around a table, um, and there was a you know a couple other people there, and uh, a, a one woman asked him, "Is uh, you know is 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 Jerry Garcia like a bodhisattva?" You know, so she asked this like classically kind of like Bay Area, you know, psychedelic whatever this sort of question that's like you know kind of reflects this whole way that the Grateful Dead have 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 carried this sort of sacred charge, despite the fact that they're also you know, very kind of critical of religion and they're, they're not, uh, you know, well, that's a whole other question, like talking about the Grateful Dead. But so she asked this, this, uh, this question and, and, uh, you know, so it's like, what's, what's, what's the Roshi going to do with this, you know? And so it's like, he was saying, well, you know, in, in Buddhism, there are these figures, you know, these protector spirits, you know, uh, who are sort of, they support the Dharma. And, you know, so he's talking about this idea, you know, you find it in Vajrayana where there's, you know, this um, collision of, of Buddhism and, you know, pre-Buddhist indigenous practices that involve, you know, magic and the spirits of the place and spirits of mountains or whatever. So the idea is that these sort of pagan spirits uh, become protectors, you know, for the Dharma, but they're not quite in the fold. So it's kind of a brilliant answer, you know, like, so, you know, it's like Jerry is like supporting the Dharma, but it's like, would it be wrong to think of him as some kind of, you know, uh, light himself, exactly. And this has got me thinking about, wow, so what's really going on here? And, and it, in, in some sense, the answer was really clear was that in Western Buddhism, at least at that time, I think things are changing to now, we can talk about that. But you know, for the for the last twenty years, since the you know late seventies or whatever, certainly through the eighties and and nineties, uh, the psychedelic aspect of Buddhist practice, whether it was something that initiated the practice or whether it was something that was ongoing, was like a tantra, and in the sense, in the sociological sense, that uh, tantra involves secrecy. And do an antinomian behavior, you know, things that are literally against the law. So in classic Tantra, you know, you're a Hindu, but you're going to eat meat. Maybe you're going to eat, 
you know, a little bit of human flesh. You're going to drink alcohol, have sex with people who you're not married, whatever. You do all these things because the part of the power of the path is is antinomian actions, actions that are literally against the law, against the the social mores uh, around you. Uh, and so in Western Buddhism, because it wanted to legitimate itself and be seen as a real religion and, you know, people were making their careers and, you know, attracting, uh, you know, power, you know, people from all walks of life, including straight society into, into Buddhist practice, this other realm had to be kind of hidden. And, uh, it was a little, you know, it's a little kind of a bit of a dirty secret in a way, almost like it's sort of like the magical stuff you don't really want to talk about. I mean, it's the same you could have a similar conversation about where did all the magic go? Like in, you know, if you go to Asia, there's magic in everything in Zen and even in Theravadan. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of aspects that we kind of don't translate or kind of not hide, but sort of ignore even in the, in the West as part of the legitimation of, of Buddhism in a, in a secular society in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics had that kind of function, but they were also tantric in another sense, which is that they have this kind of visionary capacity and quality. There's a sort of magical or ritual element to it. You know, you, you start to recognize uh, or experience, let's say, energy flows in the body that have more to do with uh, sort of magical maps of the chakra system than they do with physiological models of the body. So it's like the body itself becomes a site of energy, including erotic energies that are related to visionary experience, uh, even encounters with beings and, and other dimensions and that all those kind of zones. Well, those also sort of relate to a, a general feature of tantric practice. So it's like, oh, wow, we have like our own tantra. And, and it's, you know, and I was aware of it as a practitioner you know, one time I was in a in, in doing dokusan, and uh, I was talking about psychedelic experience. And I have sort of a booming voice, and I walk out, and and one of the, you know, uh, assistants to the to the retreat, you know, came up and was clearly sort of, uh, oh, you know, you could you can your voice is, carries very loud, you know, you can really hear what you're talking about, so you might really want to, you know, keep it down. Like he was like, didn't want that to be something that that people heard, and. You know that was that's okay. I mean, in a way, secrets are kind of fun. Uh, you know, there's a positive aspect to heresy. There's a positive aspect to the esoteric, uh, and so I think that like Buddhism, psychedelics within Buddhism was this kind of esotericism. And a lot of people that I knew who had foot feet in both worlds, who were also friends of mine, um, you know, they had interesting ways of sort of navigating these that had its own. It kind of kept alive, I think, some of the earlier spontaneous kind of goofy even uh, beat zen uh, aspect of western buddhism like when when people when people in the counterculture first encountered buddhism you know they were making up with so much stuff they were taking what they like you know they weren't necessarily being introduced to serious practice not all of them anyway but there's a kind of beauty in that naivete too a sort of hipness or a sort of like you got to dance on your feet it's like the the system the structure the discipline the the tradition isn't necessarily going to hold you up or tell you how to navigate everything and so psychedelics 
ma- maintained a kind of place inside of Western Buddhism that just had a, I don't know, there was just, a, it was a little more spontaneous, improvisational, weirder, uh, magical. Uh, and I, and I, and, and so I, it, but it was still integrated in the whole thing because of its sort of tantric function. Um, and so I don't know, it seemed like a really, uh, it was, I think important to kind of make that, draw that connection, uh, as part of, you know, almost a, fir- almost a first stage before we get to the kinds of conversations we're having now, which are very different because it's not, it's not a secret anymore. It's really part of the conversation. Uh, here and in and in a lot of places, so it's really changed quite significantly. Yeah, I, I was listening to your conversation with uh, with Alan uh, on your show, and one thing that you pointed out, which I've been noticing as well, is that part of that change is sort of the legitimation through through science and particularly neuroscience of both psychedelics and Buddhist practice. There's been a way in which they've kind of become more legitimate and have. You know the brain scans show similar kinds of of changes in the you know in the lump of gray matter uh, in our heads, and so somehow that seems to be part of it. But then, uh, curious, what else have you seen in terms of that legitimation process? What are what are some of the things that have been changing since, for instance, um, Zig Zag Zen was first um, published? Well, first I want I want to t- take a little riff on what you were saying about brain science because I totally agree that. Uh, both the the acceptance of Buddhism and the and the growing acceptance of psychedelics both have to do with the way that those two traditions or whatever you want to call them currents uh, were able to be reframed by neuroscience that that neuroscience allowed them to be le- legible in a way to secular society to you know contemporary Western intellectual norms in a very similar way. Uh, so there's a, they were kind of running in parallel. I mean, Buddhism, you know, the, the sort of neuroscientific recuperation or, or reframing of, of, uh, meditation, you know, goes back a lot longer, but there's still this very sort of interesting relationship where both Buddhism and psychedelics have been able to make a mark, particularly on secular society or on, on psychotherapy or he, the, the healing, uh, disciplines um, in a kind of similar way, which puts them, it makes a very interesting kind of connection to them. And it, and it makes sense because basically if you're kind of a materialist, let's say, let's say not a hundred percent, but a, enough of a materialist where you put the brain in the set in, you know, in, in the driver's seat, we're talking about the nervous system here. We're talking about the, the human evolved nervous system and its capacities to have experience to whether we call it altered states or not. And once you just sort of do that, you kind of, you kind of have to take everything. You're like, okay, if we're talking about the brain and all the things that happen in the brain that we experience as phenomena in our minds, uh, how do we, we can't really delegitimate anything. I mean, it's, you got to explain it all. Like you, if you're going to give me a robust brain-based explanation of consciousness, you better have a pretty good explanation of what happens when when I smoke DMT. If you leave aside that extraordinary phenomena of what happens when I smoke DMT from your explanation of how consciousness and the brain interrelate, you're not doing anything. That's like completely insufficient. So if you're taking the brain seriously and you know, openly, you got to take in all this stuff. You have to take. You have to be able to explain 
near near death experiences, even though they're not necessarily what they seem to be, or out of body experiences, or all this sort of strange phenomenology. You you got to have a a, a a robust explanation for it, or your your brain based science is, isn't really doing it. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like it sneaks in through the back door. <laughs> yeah, that that makes good sense. Um, it's so interesting too that um, I, I remember seeing some of the sort of early brain scans of you know people using psilocybin, and then of course there's been tons of brain scans on meditators and advanced meditators and you know, how interesting it is that so many of the same kind of systems are deactivated and activated. Um, and it makes sense, you know, from, a from the, from the, from the personal perspective of having done both, you know, it, it makes good sense that there's huge overlap there. And of course we've known that for a while, but, uh, yeah, somehow that, that legitimation sort of has creeped into everything. And now people are like, Oh, maybe we can talk about this a little more openly. Um, although you've been doing it since the early '90s, so thanks for holding it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but it is changing. I mean, I, I mentioned that uh, when the Zigzag Zen came out the first time, we did an event at at, at, uh, at Spirit Rock in Marin County, and there was a certain set of questions. There was a lot of questions about: Is this legitimate? What do we do with the fifth precept? Uh, you know, can we, is it dangerous to talk about this? You know, it was still this kind of question of whether or not this psychedelics were, were part of Dharma culture in the West, whether it was legitimate, but, and we had a similar event at Spirit Rock when the new edition came out, uh, you know, Jack Kornfeld was, was there and he gets major props, man, because he was talking uh, openly about psychedelics as a positive feature of his experience, but also just in general, just having he, he framed psychedelics in a positive way way before anybody else was it, it, in terms of Dharma teachers who were who were quite right. visible at, at a time when he, there was it was not cool to do that. Like it, it was a it was a dangerous thing to do if you wanted to have a nice you know appearance in the sort of mainstream society as like a legitimate spiritual practitioner, et cetera, et cetera. So he was, uh, you know, kudos to him for, for that. But when we gathered again uh, for the second celebration of, of Zig Zag Zen, the conversation and the questions and the crowd, totally different. Nobody was talking about the fifth, fifth precept. Nobody was worrying about how the outside world was going to see us. Nobody was saying, this isn't a legitimate part of, of Buddhism or even worrying that that might be an issue. It was just taken for granted that this is part of the picture. And people had a lot of questions. And where I think we're are, so we're in, it, we're in this really interesting place because we don't know what it means to bring these things together more intimately. I mean, we can have a story about, a, a, a kind of anthropological story about, oh, people take drugs and it opens them up to altered states. And so they, then they get into interested in meditation and then they find a path and they become more disciplined and maybe they do or do not continue to use psychedelics at certain points. And we can talk about it that way, like sort of behave, you know, how, how do people use it in their lives? But the really interesting questions now that I think, you know, the, your, your series is a part of, and it's sort of bubbling up all over the place is kind of more fine tuned. Like how do we actually practice with this connection how do we actually you know if we're saying that there is re, there there's 
legitimate connections, that there's value, value to being a Buddhist person who takes psychedelics or a psychedelic person who turns on to Dharma, which is a different logic, but also mm -hmm. important, um, that what does it actually mean? How do we bring these things together? How do we bring these things into meditation? What, what, are, what are the tools, the techniques that work? How does it, uh, uh, how, you know, how do we integrate it? you know, integrate the experiences, but also integrate the practices. What practices are valuable to bring from a Buddhist framework into, say, an ayahuasca um, circle or an ayahuasca experience? And it's kind of wonderful because it's, it's it, we just, the only way to know is to experiment. We have to like practice now. So it's kind of funny. We're talking about it, it right here, but in a way, well, what is, you know, available are, the is the opportunity to to practice in a more minute way uh, with with the with this overlap with this resonance between these zones. Cool, and that that seemed to be when we spoke earlier the most kind of interesting and exciting place for us to focus our conversation. That said, before we jump into that, because I know you have a lot of interesting thoughts on this, um, I wanted to kind of point out. In our last conversation, you used the term freelance Buddhist to describe, I guess on a good day, how you might relate to Buddhist practice. And you, for a while, were really practicing uh, heavily in the Zen tradition and then took some, to basically took, took a break or kind of changed your relationship to it. You, you seem to more describe yourself as a psychedelic person, like that's more of your home turf um, and perhaps, I guess, identity. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you maybe identify with that side of this intersection more heavily. Um, curious about that. I'm really curious about that that intersection of identities, um, and I'm also curious just kind of why was it that you moved away from Buddhism? I personally have moved away from Buddhism a lot in the last few years, so I really can relate to that. But I'm curious, you know, if if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that. No, no, it's 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 good actually because I I don't talk about it as as much and it's uh and I I said this that the same thing when I I spoke at the at Zigzag Zen the, the second time at the, the, the at Spirit Rock um where I'm uncomfortable even when I was practicing heavily I never was comfortable saying I'm a I'm a Buddhist or I you know I practice I would say I practice Buddhism because there's sort of more of a separation there but I ha I'm a psychedelic person and partly I'm a psychedelic person just because I started taking psychedelics when I was young, when I was a t uh, an adolescent and I was in an environment that was very trippy, you know, growing up in uh, Southern California in the, in the late seventies and early eighties where there was still a lot of the kind of drift of the counterculture. And there were a lot of things around me, you know, Hare Krishna's, I, I practiced some, went to some Zen places and went to Grateful Dead shows and there were you know, it was good drugs around and I was kind of a stoner and that was my identity. I was like a stoner who got good grades. That was like my, you know, my way of being in and out at the same time. And even though I didn't uh, always, you know, t I didn't take a lot of psychedelics during college or, or the, the years after that when I lived in New York, you know, some, uh, but it, it was always sort of part, it just felt like part of what I was essentially about how I, I approached the world. And then Buddhism came in and matured that and, and took, you know, uh, 
the possibilities of consciousness and sort of refined them and, and brought them in re- into relationship with, with ethics and with self-observation and with a lot of things that, uh, you know, um, enabled me to become a more mature person and deal with particularly with a lot of psychological challenges and, and heaviness, uh, in my, in my own experience. Um, and, uh, so then I start, you know, I, I wanted, you know, a teacher wanted to do that. And so started going to mostly to se- session. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but well, actually there's one part that's kind of interesting. So I, I had mentioned before that I, uh, had met Michael Roach and, you know, started reading, you know, Prasangika, Madhyamaka philosophy and, you know, really getting into the kind of philosophical uh, aspects of thinking about emptiness and the nature of objects. And those philosophical questions were to me very relevant from a psychedelic point of view, because uh, to me, psychedelics are part of how they function is to, you know, undermine the solidity of objects, of thoughts, of modes of identity. And so there's a kind of, you know, liquefying component to them that also has an ontological aspect. So I was really, you know, into, into the philosophical issues. And I started to practice with, uh, with Geshe Roach when I was living in New York, but it was just way too like, uh, organized, you know, doing these long rim meditations where like, you got to think, oh, I'm going to die and okay. And then, uh, the only hope is the Dharma. And then I got to think about the teacher and, I just, I was like, this is just not going to work. So, uh, you know, I was like hunting around for something and there was a, 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 Z- a Zendo uh, near Washington Square that was run by uh, Pat O'Hara, who was, uh, you know, at that time, a teacher of media at NYU. And she, she was a lesbian and her lover was there and they were cool and they just had this place in their apartment. And I fell in love with it because they just, you just you just, they shut up. You sit down, you stare at a wall. Nobody's telling you what to do. So I fell in love with Zen, not just because I like the vibe and the kind of, there's a hip kind of aesthetic quality to Zen. And it's got this sort of tradition in the West. It's the longest, richest form of American Buddhism. Uh, and so that's kind of, it was a cool, you know, uh, tradition that I could identify as well as the, you know, the great stuff that I was reading and, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the koan books. Uh, but I mostly just liked it because they did, nobody told you what to do and you just sat there. So I just, you know, developed my own way of meditating. I never really like, you know, I fought, whatever I, I didn't, I didn't follow a structure. And so I was, and eventually I said, I realized, Oh, that's shikantasa. Like I'm, that's what I'm doing. So, uh, I really liked the freedom within the form that Zen offered me. So I got super into that. And then, you know, I, I think I, I think the main thing that, that there are two things that led me away from it after I did a lot of practice. One is that personally, I don't, I don't work that well with teachers. Um, I'm, I'm fiercely independent. And while I love intellectual encounters and being challenged by people who are smarter and know more stuff than me and know how to do things I don't do, um, the, the kind of teacher student relationship was always fraught and it, it just didn't quite work for me in, after a number of, of, of times of trying that. Uh, and so part of my stepping away was to accept what I've come to believe for, at least for my life is that, is that teachers are much less important than, uh, peers. So I have like kind of a peer to peer spiritual model. My it's spiritual, it's a model of spiritual friendship, my friends are my teachers, and I am sometimes the teacher of my friends. And sometimes those people are actual, quote unquote, teachers, 
who are, you know, whatever you pay money to, or they're, they're the, the authority in the room and that's fine. But I, I needed to find a way of reframing that outside of the kind of more traditional mode, mode of being a, a student of a teacher. So, so that was the thing that happened, but I was also, it also had to do with my, my uh, intellectual sense of where Buddhism was was going in, the, let's say this is the early 2000s, so you know, 15 years ago. Uh, well, I just got I just got totally sick of Buddhist discourse. I got just sick of the sort of smug uh, kind of you know Marin County feel good kind of privileged, educated. Uh, I don't know. It just, I just hit the wall with it and it, it drove me nuts. And so I just, I just didn't want it anymore. Um, and I, even though I was interested in certain issues, particularly as neuroscience and how do we think about it and the whole problem of, of the secular Buddhism, can we be totally secular? So I, I was always interested in, you know, a bachelor and, and, and that kind of stuff. But so I became really a freelance Buddhist in the sense that I, it was still in the Dharma, you know, it wasn't just meditation. It was, it was meditation with a Zen or emptiness focused kind of zone, but I just followed my own path. And so I just, you know, did my own meditation and did that for a very long time. And, you know, so I'm, I'm a backslider in, in some ways, and I have a great respect for people who go through, you know, formal practice and, you know, climb up the ladder and, you know, get the fancy transmissions or the higher teachings and all that stuff. That's, that's great, but it just was never going to work for me. So, uh, I became, you know, like I said, I became more of a freelancer and right. And right now I'm, I'm more, I am doing more long-term meditation retreats because I need it and I want it. Um, but it's, you know, I may or may not have a teacher again, and it doesn't really matter that much to me uh, because I have, you know, great, <laughs> I'm, I have part of, you know, I have these, I have great spiritual friends. So, you know, I'm covered. Uh, but uh, so that's, that's a lot of the kind of, um, you know, identity thing is, is, uh, you know, in, in some ways I'm class, the total typical person who become you know, becomes a Buddhist, you know, I'm, educated i'm progressive politics i'm from california you know i've, I've been, enjoyed parts of the counterculture uh, i'm intellectual i have some philosophical questions i love asian culture you know my house has lots of japanese art around it you know it's like i'm, I'm totally in this this like the the center of the demographic site for being a, a western buddhist uh and so to some degree i am but i'm because i'm so like I'm a contrarian. <laughs> I resist that inside of myself uh, as well, and particularly, uh, you know, some of the discourse. I think Buddhism, the discourse in Buddhism, is much more interesting now. Um, also, more fraught. Uh, uh, there's some really interesting problems in it now. Uh, you know, for example, back one of the reasons I got sick of stuff back in 15 years ago was that I could see the way that mindfulness was beginning to detach itself from from tradition and become secularized and technologized, really, that it was becoming a way of uh, a, a kind of method that could be integrated by the sort of, you know, 
postmodern late capitalist subject who is able to sort of use these devices in order to whatever produce effects that they wanted to not be freaked out to to manage uh, the the stresses of modern life and i could see that there was a, a there was something very hollow there there was something really missing uh in the kind of exuberance to psychologize these methods um, but people were so psyched about it. Oh, this is the, you know, we're going to spread it and it's going to be in businesses and it's going to be in hospitals and kids are going to do it. And we're going to, you know, there's this kind of sense of like transforming society through these secularized practices. And I think now, even though there are great things about mindfulness, it's, it's I'm happy that lots of ordinary people are exposed to these methods. And I have no doubt that it relieves suffering. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that there's some really problematic aspects of how Buddhism or aspects of the Dharma have been secularized and integrated into late capitalist society. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, but now it's obvious. So now what do we do? Does it mean we go back to tradition? Well, I don't know. There's some rotten things in tradition too. So we're kind of stuck, but also free uh, from either pole of the kind of secular, you know, let's just make what what works for people now. Like that's not quite enough. You need some larger frame. You need a bigger story. You need a myth. You need a mystical encounter. But yet it, you can't just go and like revise the old forms of spiritual authority because it's it doesn't work that well anymore. I mean, you can, individuals can. I'm glad that, that people maintain traditions, you know, in the larger ecology of things. I think, I think it's important to have hardcore, purist, uh, by the book, uh, you know, judgmental, moralistic even people. They're necessary to kind of keep the forms mm -hmm. going in some ways. But I think that there's the space for the conversation what does it mean to be a Buddhist? What does it mean to bring spirituality into the contemporary moment? How do we wrestle with the facts of the brain and the nervous system and the, the psychoactive nature of reality uh, with these things going on? I think it's a really open field right now um, that's really exciting. So I'm kind of like back in the fold in a way. I, I'm reading more. I'm thinking more. I'm, I'm gingerly making contacts with teachers and traditions uh, that's, so it's kind of an exciting time for me, but I'm definitely doing it as a psychedelic person. And for me, the psych, the, the Dharma practice comes up in psychedelics in some situations more than others, just without even, it's just there. It's just part of the same thing. Uh, the, the last time I, I drank, uh, ayahuasca was not a particularly visionary experience. It was, it was challenging, but not particularly challenging, but I, you know, it was kind of, I was realizing at one point, I was like, oh my God, this feels just like a, you know, f fifth day of a session. My, my legs are sore. I'm, you know, I'm not really sure what I, who I am anymore. Uh, you know, my mind keeps playing tricks. I'm sick of my mind, but it keeps, you know, sh you know, showing up again. And behind the mind in the space, there's this imminence, there's this nowness, there's this encounter with the kind of you know glittering uh, field of awareness that I can tune into momentarily before the mind you know plays its tricks again, and it was you know I, I I felt for the first time like those two sides of myself were fully integrated, and that to approach particularly ayahuasca for me to approach it as you know essentially a kind of 
you know, Vipassana practice. It's like I'm watching the phenomena. I'm watching the visions. I'm, I'm allowing them to do what they're doing. I don't grab, you know, and so it's a, it's a different kind of mind frame. And I think then, uh, a lot of psychedelic people approach like ayahuasca where they're, especially Westerners, mm-hmm. they're hungry for visions. They want the visions. They want the, whatever it is, the, the cosmic landscape, the, uh, the Jaguar, the, you know, the, the glittering jewel box handed to you by some strange elf. And, you know, I, 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 it's exciting. I enjoy those things very much. I think it's that they play a very important role in making our practice juicy, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, in, in a way, um, you can you can say like what one one way of approaching this connection psychedelics and Buddhism is what do they have for each other, and I think the main thing that psychedelics have for Buddhist practitioners is a way to keep it from getting dry, and to also immerse yourself phenomenologically in the mystery, including the possibility of other dimensions of reality, of other kinds of beings. Like there's no way in those experiences to not go, well, this might be what's going on. And even though later on you're like, well, that's just something that happens when you take drugs and it goes away, uh, there's still that experiential encounter that that kind of serves as a sort of supplement for us as secu- as largely secular practitioners, meaning that in different conditions in the Middle Ages, in in you know Ming Dynasty China, whatever, these guys are practicing. But there's all these folk elements. There's around them. You know, you have the the, the beliefs of the people. You have Taoism over here. You got magic up in the mountains. You have all these different. You know, so it's a there's a magical dimension to reality that even the most uh, intellectually sophisticated and disenchanted approaches to Buddhism still feed off of in a way. And I think for, for, uh, modern practitioners, particularly people who are more secular who are not as interested in, in the kind of mythological or magical dimension, uh, of, of Buddhist, um, you know, culture, uh, that psychedelics really can kind of, uh, add, add some juice, add some dream, uh, to add some enchantment to the mind, not as a way to fool it, uh, but not just as a way to deconstruct it either, as a way to offer encounters, uh, encounters where you 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 are not you can't hold on to your typical form of control. That there's a kind of uh. Uh, host and guest relationship that opens up in in really engaging with psychedelic space that I think it, in itself is a kind of uh, teaching. Mm. It, it, this is a conversation and a point that's come up a number of times since uh, starting this series, and the most common backlash I've felt um, has been from those folks who have this idea of Buddhism that's kind of is dry, like you're saying that, you know, the point is not altered states. The point is, you know, simple awareness or being able to relax into or be accept, you know, sort of meta okay with whatever's arising. And I get, you know, that that is a big part of the Buddhist tradition, but it's also true 
right? That um, like in the tradition I practice the most in, in the Theravada tradition, there are some crazy trippy things you can do when you're practicing high concentration states that are very, very similar uh, to psychedelics. Um, you know, when you, you know, spend 10 days, a month, two months, three months, a year, just focusing on a single object, um, you know, it gets extraordinarily trippy. And um, some people have a more natural inclination toward this capacity. Like my wife, for instance, I call her a concentration monster. And she can just, you know, within a few days of being on a retreat, she's like, she, she's on a permanent second, you know, the rest of the retreat is a psychedelic trip the whole time. Um, and so that's really interesting to me too, that, that there's still even ways within the Buddhist tradition, there are methods for doing this and they don't, they're not necessarily diametrically opposed even within the tradition. And I totally agree with you that psychedelics can juice things up and um, bring people into a kind of questioning or mystery or, you know, openness about what this all is. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm more evidence for your your perception there about, especially about concentration practices, which is is sort of general, usually my my cup of tea, and one of the reasons that I've been more interested in longer retreats again after after not doing it for a long time is uh, what um, is precisely that is that I I find that. In, in when I'm deeply concentrated, I am one of those kind of concentration people where it comes to me relatively easily and I can sort of stay there for a while. Uh, that, you know, a, a number of times I've had experiences that were, that were quite psychedelic, quite visionary with, you know, beings and dimensions and, you know, aspects of my, my body, energy lines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, all occurring on, on the Natch. And, you know, and I've spoken to other uh, Dharma teachers. There was a Dharma teacher at the recent Zigzag Zen who was, you know, very, very straight up, you know, in the, in the game Dharma teacher. Uh, but he said the same thing. He was just like talking about concentration practices and how, how similar they are. So the same kinds of issues arise. And then you, so then you have this really interesting question. And this is one of those questions that were, that if, if we, um, you know, accept the legitimacy of this this aspect of practice. Whether you're in a deep concentration or in, a, you know, a psychedelic state, what do you do with the beings? Mm. Sometimes beings come, and what do you do? This is just my mind. Okay, oh, I can deconstruct it. It's just phenomena. You know, it's like Mara's displays. You know, you're you're just you're just witnessing, not grabbing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's one approach. But there's also a being there. There's some kind of I-thou that's happening. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how you practice ethically with an I-thou. Because if you think about the deconstructing approach, what does that mean to do that with like in a, you know, in, in normal reality? I'm like hiking in the woods and I, you know, run into a deer and I'm, the deer's looking at me and I'm looking at the deer if I just go, oh, yeah, this is just a phenomena, you know, it's just empty. It, there's, it's, you know, just a meat DNA machine that's produced this creature. You know, like if I just deconstruct it, I've, I've missed something. I've missed something about what it means to be alive or I, what it means to be in relation. And there's not as much discourse in Buddhist philosophy about that relationality, but it's there too in, in ideas of interdependence and uh, in some of the kind of more 
folkloric aspects and 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 in other ways that I'm probably not even thinking about. But to me, that that's a, a really important point because it's not about the specific being as much as it is about developing this kind of relationality with with the state itself. There's a kind of relationality with you know cosmic ayahuasca space and it, and to just witness it as phenomena, as empty phenomena that is arising in the mind that one is sort of resting in, just yeah. to rest in awareness. It's a great practice, but it's still like there's a question in it for me about what to do. And that question is, uh, I think, extremely fertile. And I think it's also important if you look at it the other direction, how Buddhism can help psychedelic people can help people who are, who are, you know, there's so many people now who are doing ayahuasca who aren't even related with the counterculture, who are, you know, coming at it from some other angle, uh, who aren't necessarily experienced with, you know, LSD and, all, you know, other, other kinds of more whatever uh, common uh, things within, within uh, you know, the underground or what was once the underground. So you have all of these people who are doing that. And I think that, that, Buddhism can also, you know, really feed into that in a really important way, particularly around visions. You know, I mentioned that a lot, you know, you go to like the sort of general language around a lot of psychedelic experiences, it kind of often fetishizes visions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think some of that Buddhist disenchantment is a a really great way to navigate through uh, some of the experiences as as a way to, you know, not get caught up as much in the kind of phenomenal, you know, phenomena of a visionary experience, but to instead to develop a kind of mm, visionary capacity, like it's a sort of witnessing, uh, or it's a kind of way of navigating, of moving, of, of shifting, of finding points of connection, of resonances, of working with sound and other sort of ways of, of, um, of navigating the space rather than uh, seeking particular visions. Right, right. I'm, I'm sort of hearing a bit of a middle path, Madhyamaka type thing emerging and how you're talking about these two spaces and how they can sort of inform each other. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a, for me, that's a, that's a real, that's a real practice. And, um, you know, in answer to the question of like, well, wh- you know, why would you bother just sort of adding on more Maya, essentially? It's like these, you know, psychedelics are Maya machines. And so you're just adding more Maya. Um, there's still something different about practicing of, of, of resting in awareness when the field of consciousness itself has so drastically changed. Mm-hmm. Um that that capacity, what the what you're training in remaining awake and aware, uh, has a different play, has a different uh, dimensionality to it. That, in my experience, st- remains as part of the overall field of whatever you want to call it, a, 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 the sort of wake, the waking mind, the um, resting in awareness uh has more dimensionality to it partly through those practices which i've you know gone through you know tre- you know tremendously challenging 
uh, ayahuasca experiences where the only practice was to stay present. Mm. And uh, not just with ayahuasca, with other, with other ones, where the only real option for navigation is just complete, you know, completely throwing yourself back in to the moment, that awareness of t- the present moment passing. And yeah, would, 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 I was going to say, wouldn't, wouldn't you, I mean, my experience with psychedelics in particular, and maybe this is a distinction between meditation and psychedelics is that I've also found there can be those times where it's not even like I'm throwing myself back into presence. It's just, there's no little, literally no choice anymore, but surrender into what's happening you know, to to surrender, um, even even the sense that there's uh, some someone having this experience. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. That that the, I mean, it really you you develop these capacities to surrender, and that's that's one way of looking at it. Because th- that I think is helpful is that from meditation, you know, what is meditation? What are we doing? We're training the mind. You know, you're developing habits. You're developing. Uh, or whatever you want to habits not quite the right word, but you know uh, dispositions. You are you know cultivating dispositions. Uh, you know what, uh, whether they're not attaching, whether they're recognizing the way that emotions become stories. What you know that the sort of work you do to kind of deal with your ordinary mind, you know, and it, it's scattered quality. But then you know beyond that as well, you're developing the capacity to rest in the present. You're you know developing. Um, you know, all of these modalities of uh, spontaneity, of, of awareness, of letting go, et cetera, et cetera. But in psychedelics, when you're practicing with them, you're developing other kinds of skills. And the surrender one is mighty because mm-hmm. it's really hard to surrender in ordinary life, at least not my experience. Like it's really, you know, it's hard to know what it, what it means and are you just sort of giving into something and is it, you know, maybe, you know, da- you know, dancing and, um, you know, wonderful art, uh, is a way as a certain kind of surrender, but it's often very, fr- it's off, often framed like, oh, I'm going to a party and then I'm going to dance and I'm going to surrender to that, or I'm going to, you know, surrender to, um, you know, the, like the fact that my, my spouse is in a terrible mood and, you know, I kind of want to hide from it, but that I got it. It's, it's part of what's going on. So I'm going to surrender and embrace that and accept my negative feelings. That's hard to do <laughs> sometimes. Oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, and I think that psychedelics, when you're in difficult places in particular, uh, but also in delicious places where there's no, like you say, there's no option that the capacity to surrender to your experience, to be with your experience as something novel, as something you don't know, uh, feelings that don't have names, visions that don't have symbolic, semantic meanings, you know, that kind of freshness of experience to be able to surrender to that and tune into that, you're training the mind. And that will appear when you're sitting on the pillow, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, okay, I want to make sure we we, we get into the thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> what does it mean to practice as a psychedelic person doing Buddhist practice or a psychedelic Buddhist or however you want to frame it? What, you know, what, what does that look like? And I'll, and I'll just preface this, this question opening up to you by saying, you know, for, for me, the last four years since I've started experimenting with psychedelics, um, it's always for me, 
felt like that's the question, you know, what is this and how does it relate to what I've done in terms of contemplative practice and psychological inquiry and all of those things, you know, how, how is this related and how can, how can it be approached with the same kind of reverent, uh, appreciation, commitment, dedication to developing these dispositions, um, to healing the parts of the self that need to be healed, to caring about the larger interconnected, networked, conscious reality. You know, th- those things have been an underlying motivation for me. And I feel like even after four years, I don't really have any clear answers to that. But it's a really interesting question. I'm curious, you know, how you approach that question. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I, I feel uh, like I would love to have a, a more um, concrete answer or, or response uh, to your prompt. And I don't because it, it remains a question for me. It feels like there are forms that are waiting to be evolved that are, you know, both individual, but particularly collective, uh, where there are ways for people to experiment, whether, you know, microdoses in retreat settings, um, visionary, you know, practices that involve the imagination in situations, uh, hardcore uh, vipassana in the context of, you know, strong experiences, but, you know, you know, practicing it, like, that's what I'm doing. I'm not just going to go with everything. I'm going to keep where you kind of work, work it. Uh, And all of these experiments are going to be happening to all these different, all these people. And somehow you want to create like a, a, you know, a, a shared culture is going to emerge from this somehow there. And, and that's what it feels like we're doing is that we, we, it, it, the only way for us for people to start to exper- experiment more explicitly, more geekily, you know, like that, that's a, an aspect of psychedelic culture that I think is really key is the sort of geek side, the, the Arrowhead approach that the, the Arrowhead being this website where, you know, it's the long running uh, encyclopedia of psychoactive information. It's, you know, it's not associated with any governmental or uh, university institution, but it functions as an enormous database where people put their experience reports, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Arrowhead inculcates a certain approach to psychedelic experience that's geeky. Where you you know you 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 rigorously know what you're doing what you're doing where where the source is you you know notate when you when things happen you know you take notes you know one what happens at one hour what happens at two hour and you kind of develop a way of of treating the experience as an experiment even if you're also just having fun or if you're you know whatever it but it's a sort of you you add a kind of attitude of, of an ex- experimenter who's taking notes, basically. You include that in the system. And I think that the inclusion of that experimenter in more formal meditation uh, situations, with or without the exploration of psychedelics, is a really positive step. Because in a way, what we're talking about is like, what are your experiences? What happens when you do these kinds of doses? Or what happens when you approach with this kind of practice? Or uh, what are aspects of your experiences that you've already had that become kind of um, guideposts or insights 
uh, that you have. I'll just t- I'll just tell one that um, I you know I, I don't really know exactly whether you, whether I can call this Buddhist or not, and I I don't want to offend people who think that just because you see a you know a bodhisattva in your vision doesn't mean that it's Buddhist. But uh, this this is I think a, a concrete example of what I'm talking about, at least in terms of uh, of psychedelic experience. So I was in an ayahuasca circle and. Um, you know, it was fairly early on. I could tell that people were, were, were starting to really take off, but it, I was kind of stuck. Like I was, you know, high, but there, it wasn't really engaging. It felt kind of like a stuck energy. Like I was kind of fuzzy, um, and a little frustrated. And, uh, the, uh, the shaman, uh, from Peru came over and he had a, uh, damn, what do you call those? Bull roar. He had a bull roar. And so he started to to swing the bull roar around in the uh, the hall, and you know it's this device that you know, goes around in a circle and it's making this buzzing kind of uh, noise, which is such a psychedelic key noise, this sort of buzzing high higher frequency kind of buzz. And I could feel as he was carving the circular space in the air, as the sound was moving around, the sound was dr- was drawing a sort of circle in the air, that circle in, kind of entered into my energy body to, and sort of spiraled up my spine and exploded through my head. And I went from this kind of fuzzy, weird space to, you know, about as about as close to a sort of... Uh, uh, Samboka Kaya, you know, space of clarity, of vastness, of the presence of mind, of both the self and an other that's, that's one. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience, but it was, it was also like a, a trick or a, a device. And there's, so there's this really interesting place between device and, you know, experience that uh, it gets down to the nitty gritty. So you kind of want like records of things and, and conversations and colloquia and, and uh, retreats where people are working. I mean, it feels like it's, it's, it's sort of into the workshop uh, that, that this, this, con- this conversation is going to evolve. So it makes it kind of hard because it's sort of the issues of legality and like, where are these conversations happening? And is it, a, is it public? It's just, it gets really kind of confusing, but it really feels like it's, it's kind of on that, that nitty gritty level uh, that, that we're going to start developing that the, the structure around these individual explorations that like you say, like on my own, I, I'm still not really sure what to make of it. Uh, and yet I feel very strongly that, that, that there's tremendous value there. Okay, that's interesting. So I'm kind of going back to a conversation I had hearing you talk with Roland Griffiths, who's the lead researcher at Johns Hopkins, doing so much good stuff around psilocybin. And, you know, he, one of the research pilots he's, or, or studies he's been doing is with advanced meditators. Um, one, one of my friends, uh, former student, participated in that study. And we're going to have him on the series to talk about it. Um, he's also uh, a medical professional. Um, and one thing I was struck by talking to Roland is that it sounded like 
you know, the the goal of this research is one sort of to to explore what these what it's like to have practiced deeply as a meditator and then to see what the psychedelic experience is like and how do they compare and how how do you relate them and all of that, which is great and interesting. But it's also you know, part of it's about them figuring out how to create a good environment for people to have these experiences and ultimately how to bring them into the medical field appropriately. And and really to me there's a t- there's a there's a there's a linkage between the medical field and the and the sort of religious and spiritual world. Um, because they're slightly they're different aims in some ways, and yet it's really hard to, to disentangle them, especially when you're talking about some of these psychedelic substances where so much of the medical benefit seems to be existential um, anyway and, and spiritual in nature. So you know I can kind of see the you know the, the leading edge of the stuff um, sort of heading in that direction where there could be appropriate and safe spaces to do this kind of work um at some point you know that that's like maybe, maybe the hippies were thinking about this in the 70s and like maybe one day this stuff will be legal it's like okay 40 years later here we are <laughs> you know it's, it's in some states you can smoke cannabis legally um curious you know yeah that it, it's just it's it's a tricky it's a tricky situation because the the secrecy and the esotericism and the um, and the and the valid concerns about um, about uh, safety and protocol, um, because one thing you talked about in our last conversation is that you know actually getting together and practicing and coming up with these things makes it safer. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, that's again my you know if you come from my sort of uh, spiritual friends model, that the way in which you move forward is is you know, as a freelancer is that you're experimenting, you're, you're probing, but there is this context, there's this field of exchange where you're able to, you know, kind of keep each other grounded as you are, uh, you know, exploring. And, you know, I'm, I've just always been sort of more on the, you know, non, non-professional side of things. And I'm, I'm always more, I'm always interested, or I, I really want to, make sure that there's a space for um, independent exploration in these things. And so as the medical model grows, as institutions come up with ways to work with these materials safely with people who are not experienced in order to achieve really positive goals, and that's happening, it's going to happen all over the place, Um, not just with... uh, with psilocybin, uh, but it's already happening big time with ketamine because ketamine is already, uh, it's legal essentially, you know, it's not schedule one. And so doctors can, uh, you know, prescribe ketamine and you just need an anesthesiologist to come in and administer it and you can do therapy with it. So it's sort of like the, you know, the cat's out of the bag, you know, that's, that's going to happen. Um, but within the psychedelic world, uh, part of what I've been doing is to like, you know, constantly harp on uh, cognitive liberty, which is the idea that I should not need to go to a, an authority in the, in, who has a medical license or to a religious authority who has, is legitimately seen as a, a legitimate religion by, by the state as an individual 
purely for reasons of cognitive liberty, mm-hmm. I should be able to do these things. And I bring that at the same kind of attitude towards Buddhism. It's again, this sort of cranky anti-authoritarian <laughs> zone that I had, that I got from the hippies that it's in a way, it's kind of a drag because it's not really, it's not as much in tune with our, our, our moment. Um, but, you know, so for me, it's, it's always important to parallel the enthusiasm for the development of the medical use of these things um, with a kind of co- constant call to maintain the ideal of perhaps impossible ideal, but the ideal of, of cognitive liberty, mm. um, which to me is ultimately an existential value. Like for me, the, 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 the idea of cognitive liberty as a right you know, within the kind of framework of modern human rights and, you know, the secular state where I have a right to explore my own mind as I see fit. I have a, I have a right to keep my mind uh, free from incredibly invasive uh, ma- manipulative control mechanisms, uh, you know, that kind of idea. But for me, you boil that down to a spiritual notion and it has to do with, with spiritual freedom and with um, the... Uh, the kind of the 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 my you know my capacity from wherever I am to plug into the interdependent uh, matrix or, or you know uh, Indra's net or or whatever. So that that's sort of the my you know my response to the to the medicalization and the sort of growth of psychedelic th- therapy. It's great, I love it. But when it gets involved with matters of the state. Then I just I'm it's I think it's very important for us as individuals to demand the right at the very least to be able to access these things with very moderate amounts of uh, you know control and 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 setting. Um, but you know it's uh, it's hard to say because it's hard to say who who you know what in what model is is more suffering relieved and it may be the case that the the most suffering that can be relieved now is through this process uh of met of medicalization um which you know deals with religion in very weird ways i mean it's a very strange connection between the 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 idea of what how religion works and you translate that into a medical model uh it's it it gets kind of confusing (laughs) in a lot of ways yeah yeah because it does seem like there's clear overlaps and then there's areas of uh divergence clear divergence well i mean one thing is just that the ideas of of uh of mystical experience and you know if you look at johns hopkins for example they're using a certain model of like what a mystical experience is right and they're kind of constructing that model and they're using the set and setting partly to construct these experiences and psychedelics are very responsive to set and setting. So if you have a set and setting, that's like, you're going to have a religious experience and you have, you know, Bach on the headphones and there's a flower and whatever, you're increasing the likelihood that that's going to be something that happens. And so there's a, I think, an actually, if you, if you take one aspect of Buddhism is a certain will to deconstruct experience, to disenchant the kind of phenomenal, uh, appearance of some experience uh, that religious experience itself is a construct. Mm-hmm. It, it it too is empty, and so when you see the sort of institutionalized construction of a certain idea of what religion religious experience is, 
in order to create these uh, uh, therapeutic protocols from my perspective it's it's a, it's a very weird sort of not disingenuous but there's a there's there are a lot of issues that are being swept under the carpet in order to make that process happen I, i'm not sure whether it's really in the best interest of everyone to kind of try to make that connection so explicitly uh, but it, it the very least shows the way that we cannot get rid of religious experience. I know all the problems that it raises, all of the I mean, like philosophical problems, other realities, the spirits, teachers, uh, teachers past lives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, to that point, uh, when I was talking to uh, Roland, um, I I brought the same thing up in a slightly different way, which was a question for him. You know. I said, you know, I get that when you are running these studies, you're focusing on people being by themselves, you know, with the you know, the eye flaps on and, you know, there's a sitter there that can support you. And, you know, it, it's very much focused on one's individual experience. I said, you know, part of my ex- experience and experimentation has been practicing social modes of meditation with others, you know, actually doing out loud meditative techniques or, um, you know, not trying to just go inward um, and I'll be in the same room, which is a standard silent retreat practice, but actually, what is it like to meditate interpersonally um, and throw in this sort of uh, altered state um, e- exploration? And, you know, his perspective uh, was, well, that's not really how it works. When you do a high enough dose, you can't you can't be in relationship with other people. And I'm like, is that true? Because um, I've done some pretty... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've yeah, I would never, I would never, I would never say that myself. Right, right, and 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 so th- that's how I I know what you're saying is is valid that that it is a construct, you know, because it it shows itself to be a construct when you have direct experiential evidence that says that's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> well put, sir. <laughs> so yeah. you know that to me too. That's where you, what you're pointing to this, you know the space, the workshop, the place of experimentation needs to break beyond the bounds of the medical model as well. And, and the individualism of it. Yeah, that's actually very well said. And in fact, throughout this conversation, I realized that I, I feel like I was under underplaying the role of the, of, of the collective, of being in relationship in the midst of these experiences of that, that kind of peer-to-peer uh, spirituality as it arises in the moment of being with other people, uh, witnessing other people's, you know, terrors, witnessing other people's joys, mind melding, mm. uh, playing with energy, passing energy, uh, the whole way in which, I mean, that, that, uh, that psychedelics make available a kind of experiential modality of energy in the body in the mind that is palpable and i don't know what where that comes from i mean it's 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 an amazing thing you can you know you can whatever you can send heat from your hands or you, whatever it's like you could get you i can talk about things and it starts to sound paranormal and that's not what i'm trying to say i'm just trying to say that it reveals another modality of the body that has a lot to do that resonates very much with other esoteric maps of the body whether it's chakra systems or nadis or you know kundalini or all, you know all that kind of stuff there's some sort of energy that is not just individual 
It's not just in your body. It becomes kind of part of the earth. It's part of the, if you're in nature, you're part of the, the people around you. Um, and yeah, it seems to me that re- relationality is, is, is like, that's the, that's the working place is this, that's the same thing that I, thou, where, do, what do I do with that? What do I do with the, the apparent mind meld or the telepathic wink or whatever the thing is like that, that edge of it when it's not just my own experience inside my eye shades, inside my headphones with my music co- constructing this kind of space. To me, that's, that's the edge of, that's where it's political. It's where it's ethical. It's where it's in relation to the larger matrix. That part I think has to always be, um, uh, whatever underscored and, um, celebrated. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice, or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.